Okay, I think we're live. Steph, you have a. Hello, I'm sure there's a people. Okay. So, <clears throat> let's just say a Hail Mary. If you're not there yet, that's okay. But if you're with me, just pray Hail Mary with me. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Okay. Um, so in case I forget, a quick shout out to my parents, so they notice that I'm always asking for more markers, so they sent a bunch of markers that came by today. Thank you, Dad. Appreciate it. My dad says, you'll love this, Dad. My dad is a big, he's a diehard football fan, especially for the CU Buffs. <clears throat> so my dad, this Sunday, he was at Mass, and he said, he was like, Brian, my dad doesn't call me father. He's like, <laughs> he's like, Brian, he's like you, and he named some coach, I forget which coach it was. He said, you, you're just like this one coach. I was like, why are we somewhere? He's like, you are both terrible at time management. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Um, it wasn't Hawkins. He didn't love Hawkins, though. Um, okay, but anyway, welcome back, everybody. So we're talking about Advent really briefly. So right now we're in Advent. Advent is the month that leads up to Christmas. Advent is a... And so when you come to church... The priest during Advent wears purple. And part of this is that you and I, the Catholic Church is keenly aware that God did not just create souls, but he created bodies. And that physical things actually matter. And when we get to morality, it's really interesting. We're going to talk about this. Throughout Christian history, people have accused Christians of only caring about spiritual things and not physical things. And right now, if you pay attention, I would encourage you to start thinking about this. The reverse is happening. Right now in our society, people are telling Christians that the body doesn't matter. Physical things don't matter. And one, one of the reasons I'm a Catholic is because truth doesn't change. And we'll talk about that more with time. But I don't think truth changes. And the world's always changing. In one moment, it's, it's you ha have to only care about what's physical. The next moment, you what's physical doesn't matter. And the church doesn't change her perspective on this. And I love that. Okay. But Advent, so purple is a... It's a your senses, your eyesight perceives purple. It's a change. It tells you something's different because you don't just have a soul, you have a body. And that matters. So when you kneel, right, there's, when, when you get out on your knees, it feels different from standing. And that's good. There's something about my body that actually, like, Communicate something very real. Okay, so Advent is the month essentially leading up to Christmas. So it comes from a Latin word, advenire, or advenio, 
in Latin, depending on which conjugation you want. <clears throat> but it means a coming. And so Advent, is, it looks at two different things. Um, so Advent means a coming. And what Advent does, so how many of you have put up Christmas trees? Okay, judging you in my heart right now. Um, not really. But here's the thing. So what Advent is about is it's pre preparing for God coming into this world. And there's two, and we could even argue three different times that God wants to break into this world. So the first one is the obvious one. The first time is Bethlehem. So when Jesus became a human being, when the Son of God became a human being, um, that's heresy. Let me be more precise. When the divine person of the Son of God assumed a human nature to himself in Bethlehem, that's the first coming of God into this world. But Christians also believe that God will come again into this world. And there's different words for it. The Perugia's one. Second coming. But we believe at the end of time that God will return. And so, um, Advent is a season, I'm really big on this. It's so funny, people hate this. Like, I could give the hardest sermon. If I was at Lord's and I was like, got up and I said, you are all sinners, you need to repent, you need to change your lives, you need to fast for the next week, bread and water, and turn away from X, Y, and Z, people would be like, amen, amen. And usually at this time of year I say, hey guys, we're Christians, we don't celebrate Christmas right now, we, Advent is a time of waiting. And the church has always taught this, and we'll get to why in a second, but essentially I, I, I tell people every year, I'm like, you shouldn't decorate and celebrate Christmas ahead of time. If you want to do it ahead of time, the, the, the appropriate time is when I do it, is on December 17th. People flip like you would not believe. I mean, I am like, it is unbelievable. People, I, I've never received people being so upset with me as, as much as that. It's, it's hilarious. I'm like, oh my gosh. Here's why. So we just had Thanksgiving. So imagine, like, I don't know about you, but I think most of us, this is probably true. I never eat mashed potatoes, turkey, and gravy, except for Thanksgiving. And part of what makes Thanksgiving special is that's the one time that I that we eat that way. There's something really cool about that. Imagine if you if your family said, you know what, we're gonna have turkey stuffing, mashed potatoes, and cranberry sauce every Thursday throughout the year. There's something there that's kind of missing. And so what happens is that you detract from actually Thanksgiving. So uh, an easy way to say this is you, you cannot feast. You cannot feast if you do not fast. 
are the modern world, and this gets to so many topics, but the modern world says to all of us, you want to be happy? Just have more pleasure. Have more. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know what the problem with that is? One is it's going to ruin your soul. Much deeper level, actually. That Well, maybe that's the deeper level, actually. <laughs> but maybe more shallow level is like, it actually ruins feasting. We're in Colorado. I don't know how many of you are skiers. I don't really ski anymore. Sorry, Dad. Um, but I used to be a big ski bum. A hot tub never feels better than after a long day of skiing. There's something about when you've gone through something difficult where you're able to appreciate things more. Okay, so everyone right now is celebrating Christmas. You will never appreciate Christmas if you don't realize that you actually need God. In the Catholic Church for 2,000 years, the season of Advent is a season where we actually, it's not where we celebrate Christmas. We have a whole season for that. Advent is a time where we realize we need Christmas. And so when you come to Mass on Sundays, all the readings, it's kind of weird because you come to Mass and you're like, you're like expecting like Bethlehem and the three kings and whatever else. You come to Mass, I, the readings are about the second coming. So up until December 17th, the church looks at God is going to come back into this world and he will judge the world. And so every Advent, it always starts that way. And Christians wait for that day. And, there, and one last line on this is that we hope for that day. Not because we're like, I don't know, People, we tend to fear the last judgment. and Christians are supposed to hope for it, and here's why. Because judgment is about things being set right. Most of us, when we think about judgment, we get scared, and so do I. I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm sorry I didn't live up to X, Y, or Z. But what the church wants to say to us is that when God returns, all things will be made as they should be. God comes to set things right. And Christians should hope for that. Imagine a world, imagine a world where there's no more starvation of children. Where there is no more hatred. One in four women in our culture, we're told, we're told, are sexually abused. One in four. By the way, Denver, one of the capitals of the world for sex trafficking, which blows my mind. But Den Denver and, and Highlands Ranch, which, again, blows my mind. Highlands Ranch, a massive place for sex trafficking. There are like 12-year-old girls that are sold in sexual slavery in Highlands Ranch. When we think of judgment, we, we get scared because we're like, oh crap. I did X, Y, or Z. 
But what, what we should hope for is, is we should look and say, okay, yes, I need to change my life. I need to do better. God, this world's really broken. You're the only one who can make things right. But we're all too busy because Starbucks has told us it's Christmas since the day after Thanksgiving, right? And so what happens is, and here's what I would encourage you to, Advent is a time you should think about the end of your life. You should think about the end of the world. You should think about what your life is about. December 17th, we start looking towards Bethlehem. That's when I put my Christmas tree up. That is when I start thinking about Christmas. And if more of us did that, it would be way easier. And then December 26th, everyone on your street, and I know it's hard, everyone on your street throws out their Christmas tree on December 26th. Probably you do too. And, you, and Christmas is over. Not for the church. The church celebrates Christmas for an entire season until the baptism of the Lord. That's how it should be. You cannot feast unless you fast. Isn't that cool? And if you wait for the 17th, you can wait until March to march to the Catholics. <laughs> people hate this at Lord's. We have really devout Catholics. I go to people's houses. Now, first of all, there are tons of prisoners tell me, they're like, Father Brian, we will not invite you to our house in December because we know how you feel and we just won't do it. And then other people are like, some very good friends of mine in the parish, I was at their house, I don't know, a week ago, and I came over and they said, Father Brian, do you like our winter tree? <laughs> and our winter lights. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not the Grinch, you know. Anyway, so Advent's about that. That's where we're at now. And at Lords, not every church. What we do at Lords right now, at least, is we celebrate uh, Mass and we do the Mass parts in Latin. The only reason we do that is because I want you to realize this time is different. So kind of mass, and instead of saying holy, 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 we say sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. And that's my decision. We don't have to do it that way. I have chosen to do it that way because I want you to realize this time is different. And right now is a time where you, we just kind of think about different things. Okay, did that answer it? Yeah. I just got to find the Latin version. So the Latin, yeah, the last Latin mass parts, I think they're in the missile, but I have to look. Um, Latin, should we do that really quick? Why would we do Latin? Latin, so in the early church, Latin was the common language. And so the reason the mass was in Latin was because everyone spoke it. Some people today, if you guys become Catholic, this is really popular right now. I'm, I'm a big voice of caution around this right now. A lot of people want to go back to Latin. I do not. Um, I'm, I'm fine with it for the mass parts, this holy, 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 the unused day, which means Lamb of God, certain parts. But part of why I'm against it is because the whole reason the church had Latin as her main language is because Latin was the common language of the world. And it was meant to be the language that everyone spoke and understood. Guess what? How many of you speak Latin? 
taken a Latin course. Some of you. Thank you. Okay, two Right? Latin's great to take. It's a, I mean, I wish my Latin was better, but. Okay, that's the point. Any other questions? Yes. On that topic, why? I know that like the, the mass was done in Latin like pretty much through what, the 50s or 60s? 60s. Um, why, like, why did it take so long? It's like, a great question. Stuff, like, not, not so why did so the question is the Latin, the mass is done in Latin all the way until like 1964. Why did it take so long? So the church is a big ship, and so here's here's the cool thing about it. Basically, that's the basic answer is that to change things it takes a long time. If you're turning around a little boat, it's really easy. If you turn a huge ship, it's much harder, and Remember what the word Catholic means? Universal. So here's the cool thing. When you guys become Catholic, remember your name? Carly. Carly. When you become Catholic, Carly. And when you go to, um, ooh, see that catch? When you go to Malaysia, you won't understand the language, but you won't know exactly where you're at. And there's something similar to that. And in Latin, you actually would know the words. And you'd be like, we're in the exact same place. And so there was something cool, and this is part of why it took so long. The church was like, if you go to Mass in France, or in South Africa, or in Malaysia, or in Canada, it's exactly the same. Because the faith is not dependent, and again, if you're coming from a Protestant background, I hope you're aware of this. If you come from a Protestant background, there's some truth to this in the Catholic world as well, but less. The faith just depends on who your pastor is. And people critique me about this. They're like, you lords, you know, like, oh, it's just about FB. And I'm like, I don't know why I say that. <laughs> but I'm like, stop it. <laughs> no, but, but there's something about Catholicism that says the faith is unchanging. What I believe today is what St. Um, Ignatius of Antioch believed in the second century, in the early 100s, the same thing. And so th there's something about that. So Latin was a symbol of that for a lot of people. Um, one last point I would make, when you go to Latin Mass, it kind of just feels cool. <clears throat> and again, I'm not against, there's a Latin Mass in Littleton, and the pastor there I have tons of respect for. Very good priest. But people go and they say, it just feels like mystical. And I'm like, that's not what Christianity is. The reason the Mass is in Latin was so people could understand it. Now some people like it because they don't understand it. And I'm like, that's not the point. So, but that, I think that's why it took so long. So you were part of the Mass in Latin. Mm-hmm. Want us to understand that we're in a different time. So December seventeenth. Yep. Will you continue to be part of the mass and Latin? Yep. Okay. Just those mass parts, and so and and part of it is that Latin still does carry that symbolism of the universality. So Latin, part of it is because Latin's a dead language. No one on earth speaks Latin except a couple of nerdy priests. I know one of them. He actually like speaks Latin, and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> so nerdy. But part of it is because it's not 
the language of any country. It, it, it can belong to everyone because it doesn't belong to, to one particular country. So there's, there's a symbolism of that. But for me, I'm like, when you come to Mass and it's December 1st or whatever date, first Sunday of Advent, you come and you're ready to sing Holy, 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 and they sing Sanctus, 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 it just feels different. And kind of like in Colorado, love being in Colorado, I love the four seasons. So Patrick and Stephanie and I joke with different people about when we start our parish in Hawaii. <laughs> and my one objection to Hawaii is there's no seasons. There's no seasons in Hawaii, right? Except the perfect season. But I do love the changing as much as like I'm not a winter person anymore. I used to be, but it, there's something about the seasons that are they're helpful. They mark our lives. There's something meaningful to them. So it's something like that. Okay, other questions? Yeah. Does Lawrence have any Advent books? Advent books. I don't know. I just remember growing up, my mom would read different passages, like Advent passages after dinner, before dinner. We don't right now. That's a good question. I, a great resource is Magnificat. Okay, I think they might have been Magnificat books. For Gerald's yeah. website called Blessed So, Blessed is she, Magnificat. I have not read Blessed is she, but I trust you. Um, Magnificat is great. If you ever want a great Catholic resource, it has daily prayers, daily readings, daily just kind of meditations. Magnificat is like a, it's a monthly publication. I don't know what, it, it's probably 15 bucks a month is my guess. It's awesome. It also makes Yep. Has all the mass readings, all the mass parts. It's really good. I highly recommend Magnificat. It's like, yeah, it's just great. So. Okay. Yeah, Steph. Um, so someone mentioned just one clarification. Is the traditional Latin mass different in any other way than virtual? Slightly. So the question is, is the traditional Latin mass different from the other mass in anything besides the language? Yes and no. It is. So, how do I say this? So, this is good for us to talk about coming into Jesus' life. So, what happened when, when God became man, this is, these are big topics, and this is great because this is where I want to go tonight. When Jesus Christ, when the Son of God became a human being, something that was eternal, entered into time. Now think about that. This is, like, most people don't think about this. So, something that is eternal, um, what's another way of saying this? Um, the universal became particular. So, 
God is outside of time. Um, he is truth itself. Himself. He is truth himself. He is beauty himself. He is goodness himself. And what happened when God became man is it's something that is span is much greater than any time in all of history entered into one time. So think of it this way, like the number three is a universal. You can have three bricks, you can have three trees, you can have three people, three cars. All those are different particulars of the number three. But none of those, none of those things are the number three itself. Right? And what Christians believe, and this is, I, this is stuff that you can only understand if you wrestle with it and you pray with it. That the eternal God entered something that was finite. That's, that, that is beyond comprehension. The liturgy is like that. And so the, what the Mass is about is that something that is beyond, that is eternal. And, and here's the best. Remember Pentecost? It's something like this. At, at Pentecost, Peter gets up in front of everyone and he speaks. But everyone hears them in their own language. And so the one word of God, this is, brothers and sisters, this is why I'm Catholic. The truth doesn't change. And today, I, I just want to say this. We have an arrogance as modern men and women. When I was at CU, this is my favorite story about this. When I was at CU, the best Catholic university in America, um, <laughs> when I was at CU, over the library, there's an inscription. And it says, he who knows only his own generation remains forever a child. And then, later on, when CU got more PC, which is hard to imagine, they, they cemented over the words he. In direct contradiction of the quote on the stone in the library. So now it only says, who, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, who knows only his own generation remains forever a child. And I'm like, the irony cannot be thicker. Um, there is something about the liturgy in Pentecost, right? So at Pentecost, what happens is the one word where God himself broke into history for all of time to save all of us. And that word is unchanging. By the way, this is why we have a real problem with Mormons. Not as people. They're amazing people. I have friends who are Mormons. Write caveats, blah, 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 blah. Mormons believe God had to appear again. The New Testament denies that emphatically. There is one word for all of time. So at Pentecost, Peter gets up and he speaks just from his own voice, but every different language hears it in their own language. That is Catholicism. And the liturgy is the one truth of Jesus Christ 
died on the cross for you. And we're going to get to this. When we get to the Eucharist, do not be out of town. Do not miss class. When you get to the Eucharist, if you don't become Catholic, God knows why it is not my fault. It will blow your mind. It will melt your heart. It will change your life. But there's one truth that speaks to first century Israel, fourth century Rome, eighth century Germany, ninth century Malaysia, 13th century South Africa, 20th century America. And the liturgy is like that. The liturgy is, you weren't, you didn't ask that question, someone reminded um, The liturgy is unchanging, but it speaks in the language of 20th and 21st century America. And so when you compare, we'll do this, when, I, when we get to the Mass and we talk about that, I will give you a quote from the year 117. And why do I get so emotional? Mom! Um, and you're like, I think it's 117. St. Justin Martyr, there's a Roman official that asks him, and they say, what do you Christians do on Sunday? And I'll hand that to you from the year 117. And you will read it, and you'll say, this is what we do at Lord's every single Sunday. The difference is, there are differences. The differences are the vestments look a little different, language might be a little different right jesus the eternal word when he broke into time he spoke greek but the word behind that language is eternal and so the church and and i want to just if you guys become catholic what i want to say to you is that you have to embrace what is eternal in our time and Catholics fall off the deep end because some Catholics say, let's get with the times. Hey, this is what's happening right now. This is, what's, this is what the world thinks. Let's get with the times. And they deny what is eternally true. And some Catholics, they embrace what is eternally true, and they absolutely refuse to meet people in our time. And both of those are wrong. Christianity... You can have a St. Ignatius of Antioch and who dies in the year 107 in the Colosseum, eaten by lions, and he is a man of the year 107. And you can have St. Thomas Aquinas in the 12th century, who is a man of his time. Or St. Catherine of Siena, or Teresa of Avila, or John Paul II, or Mother Teresa. Every one of them is this in their time. And that's pretty good. <laughs> okay, sorry. This is why you need so many. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. More markers. Okay, any other questions? Yeah. So, things about like eternal, eternal and time, do we resist the change on? Like, if we have to be able to enter any, like, our coordinate structure, if he's above it? He's above it. Is a better way of thinking of it? So God holds the world in existence. And this is, this, these are mysteries beyond us. But God exists outside of time. This is why death is so important. So we, if time is linear, which is how we experience it, right? Like today is not yesterday, tomorrow is not today. It seems linear. 
God stands above time. And so all moments to him can be present at once. So when you die, what we believe is that when you die, in some sense, you step outside of time. Is it time and space or just time? Um, it's, it's time. There's, your soul is not a spatial reality. Your soul is not physical. So it's not measured by space. So your soul can enter into something that is non-spatial. Your body can't. Right? Your body is a physical thing. So... When you die, time is a measure of change, right? So when, whenever in a movie, if you ever see time stop, what happens when time stops? Everything freezes, because time is about change. So this is why the truth says, hey, guess what? There is hope until the moment you die. Because you might feel like, like the older you get, you feel like you're more and more set in your ways. Let me tell you, I'm set in my ways. And it's hard, the, the longer you live, the harder it is to change. But there's always hope for you to change. Even if you can't change all your habits and everything else. This is why the good thief on the cross, right? The moment before he dies, he turns to Jesus and says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You can repent until the moment of death because time is a measure of change. Once you die, you step outside of time and you are outside of change. That's why judgment happens outside of time. And when you die, it's because once you die, the time for you to change is gone. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, anybody else? Okay, two-minute break, and then we're going to talk about the mission of Jesus and hopefully make some progress. Okay, two-minute break.
Start back up. Okay, so here we go. So we want to talk, I want to talk more and more tonight about the life of Christ and about what that's about. Um, and so what is Jesus' mission? We've talked about him being the new David, the new king. And I want to take it a step deeper tonight. And if we can get to it, we'll see. I want to start talking about the second question. How do I know Jesus is God? How do I know that? The, I write words in Greek up here when I don't want you to know what I'm going to talk about. <laughs> so I write them in Greek to remind me so you can't read them. Right? <laughs> so I want to talk about what does it mean to have faith. And we're going to try to hit a little bit on that tonight. It's a very deep question. And next week we'll probably hit it much more in, in detail. But I want to start hitting on that tonight. Okay, so Jesus comes into the world. And the, the New Testament is going to understand this in terms of a number of figures that Jesus will fulfill. Um, so last week, and let's start here, Jesus talks about how in the New Testament it speaks of Jesus as the new David. And that has to do right with the kingdom. So Jesus talks about the kingdom left and right. 
But here's, here's what I want to say to you. This is not a kingdom like other kingdoms. Um, what the, the saints of the church say throughout history is that, and so Origen, who's a very early Christian father of the church, may be the greatest scripture scholar in the history of Christianity. Origen says when you pray the Our Father, and you pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, Origen says that when you pray that prayer, what you are praying for is for God to reign in your soul. This is not, I hope, this party wins or that party wins. All those, those things matter, of course. But much more important is that the person who prays for God's kingdom to come prays that God would reign in his or, or her soul. So Origen also says, so we're going to get to this, maybe tonight we'll see. Um, when, and let's just go for it. When Moses dies, who is the person who follows Moses and succeeds Moses? Joshua. It's Joshua. Well, Aaron's his brother, and that's true in some ways. But Joshua... Does anybody know what the name Joshua is in Aramaic? Joshua, which is what? Which is God says it's Jesus. So Origen, living in the second, late second, early third centuries, Origen says when he when he realized that Joshua was the same name as Jesus. He talks about how so many things came together for him, and he became, he went into ecstasy. And what I want to say to you guys is that Jesus, right, this is a symbol for Jesus, is that all things make sense in light of him. So everything going backwards points to him, let me just do it this way, and everything afterwards points back to him. As a Christians, when we read the Bible, we don't just read it as just like this kind of like interesting historical kind of book. When we read the Old Testament, we understand this as something that is about Christ. That's how the New Testament understands it. That's how the church has always understood it. So, Origen realizes that Joshua is the name of Jesus. So Joshua, what did Joshua do? Yeah, he conquers the promised land. Right? So Moses dies on the borders of the promised land. Joshua takes the Jews into the promised land. Oh. And here's, and I, I want to ask a question, but it'll be read my mind, so I just won't answer it or ask it. So, what Origen says is, and this is just true when you read the scriptures, when Joshua enters the promised land, there are a bunch of deadly nations living in the promised land. 
and they're, they're living very immoral lives. Um, and then we know this both from the Bible and also just from history, from other sources. But anybody know how many nations are living in the Promised Land? It's one of those Bible numbers. How many? Seven. Tell us a good guess. Seven. There's seven. So there's seven nations dwelling in the Promised Land. And what Origen says is he says, that is true, that really happened. But he says, but ultimately that story wasn't really about the promised land, it was about your soul. Because the whole story of the Bible, the story of the New Testament, is a story of about Christ. And, and we'll probably talk, if you want a text for that, 1 Corinthians 10 is the best one. Galatians 4 is great too. But anyway, um, what Origen says is that story about Joshua is really, it's really about you. In your soul dwell the seven deadly sins. And the true Joshua, the true Savior, Joshua means Yahweh, the name of God, Yahweh saves. The true Savior of the world comes to drive the seven deadly sins from your soul. That's the kingdom of God. When you read the early Christians, this is how they speak about this. So in your soul, we all know this, right? I know some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Seven deadly sins. So the seven deadly sins um, in Latin sometimes are called the capital sins. And the reason they're called that is capital means a head. And it, they want you to think of it like the head of a river. So the headwaters of the Colorado River are in Colorado, in the mountains. I forget where. Does anybody know? Never Summer Range. Never Summer Range. What a great name. So, so the Colorado River originates there, and so the, all the snow, that's the snow in the mountain. That's, that's what it looks like. <laughs> they all trickle down, and they become this river, right? Something like that. And so, so the seven deadly sins, what the church is saying is that there are seven sins that are like the headwater. They are the things that give birth to other sins. And what, what happens to those seven, Christ comes to conquer them, to drive them from your soul. And what that does is it brings joy and peace. So that's one of the reasons Jesus comes. So, and think about this just for one more second with me. Um, so, like, one of the seven deadly sins, right, would be, like, envy. And if you have envy in your soul, envy is sorrow at another person's good. And I know you all look at me like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> Never heard of it. <laughs> Envy is when there's that person in your life that you don't like. Something good happens to them. They get a promotion. 
you're not very happy about their promotion, right? Envious are another person's good. That's messed up. I've had I have that in my life, and what it, what, it, what Christianity is about is that God wants to cast that out of my soul. When that happens, we experience freedom. We experience joy. Okay, so the kingdom. I should keep doing that. Jesus is the new David, and let's keep going with that. So throughout Jesus' life, one of the ways he refers to himself is he calls himself, caught it, the son of David. Okay. Who's David's son? Solomon. Okay. Um, so Jesus, in some way, is comparing himself to Solomon. He says, I am the son of David. He says that there's lots of places in the New Testament Jesus calls himself the son of David. What is Solomon famous for? Wisdom, good. Anything else? Good. Anything else? I know that I can think of anything else. The New Testament will show that Jesus is the fulfillment of this. So in Matthew chapter 12 and the end of chapter 11, Jesus will say, Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Jewish and Hebrew language, that's wisdom. Jesus will be incarnate wisdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, He's going to go up and he's going to teach us how to find peace and joy and how to live a good life. In John 2, Jesus will say, so Solomon builds the temple. So in John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. But he spoke about the temple of his So let me ask this. Why does a temple matter? What makes a temple important? The temple was the place where God was present with him. Good. It's God's dwelling place, right? So so the New Testament, one of the things it wants to say, and we're, we're talking about Advent tonight a little bit, we talked a little bit about that. Advent is about God coming into this world. In Matthew 1, uh, there's a prophecy from Isaiah 7, and it says, you will, you will give birth to a son. You will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The temple is a place that God was with us. But the New Testament says the real temple is not a building. It's the body of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says in John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. But he spoke about the temple of his body. Here's what it means to be a Christian. 
all, again, this is 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6. This is all over the place. Um, when you become a Christian, what we believe is that God doesn't desire to dwell inside a building, but inside of you. Inside of you. And so the church, again, this is all over, 1 Corinthians is the most obvious place for this. But the son of David builds a temple. The New Testament teaches us that when you are baptized, you become a member of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the true temple. And so the place that God dwells it's not so much a building, it's in us. And it's in us together as a community, as a church. So Jesus, and we're gonna, when we talk about why we believe in the Pope, I will show you something in the New Testament that will blow your mind. It is so powerful. It's one of my favorite things to teach. Maybe we'll get to it tonight. Probably not. <laughs> okay. There's that. Here's the next one. Jesus is the new Adam. So what, what Christianity is, so, what so much of it is about is that God wants to make everything right. He doesn't just want to save you so that Life is terrible, but someday you'll be in a better place. That's not Christianity. Christianity is that God wants to redeem and restore what he made as good. Today we live in this throwaway culture. When something doesn't work, we just toss it out. Christianity is the story of God. We'll never do that to you. He didn't just say, okay, Brian, you're pretty messed up. You got a lot of problems. I'll start over. What God wants to do is he wants to enter into this world. So much today, what the world thinks is this world's messed up. The best we can do is politics. And then we'll all die and go to heaven. Christianity is the story of how God is the only one who can fix this world. And the, 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 the story in miniature is your life. It's my life. So, Adam is the founder of the human race. If you want a place for this, where the New Testament talks about this, uh, this is Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. So, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 5. It's in other places as well, but those are the most obvious kind of places. Okay, so Adam is the son of God. Jesus, of course, is the true Son of God. Okay, um, and here's, here's a cool thing. So when you read about Adam, where is Adam when you read about him? Where is he? Okay, he's in a garden. So Jesus, in the key moment of redemption... Where is Jesus? He's in a garden. Explain. 
The garden of Gethsemane. Good. So he's in Gethsemane, but there's actually more. So when you go to Israel, so on, on Gethsemane, in Gethsemane on, on Holy Thursday night, Jesus is praying, and we're going to talk about this in just a second, but Jesus is praying, and there's a moment of temptation. And as Romans 5 has it, in the garden, Adam has a temptation. So does Jesus. So in the garden, Satan comes to Adam and Eve and he tempts them to eat of the tree of knowledge. So there's our next term. So Adam has, a, there's a tree. Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. And we, I don't know if we talked about this, we might have. Does anybody remember in, in Eden there are two trees that have names? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's the other tree? You can't answer me. You can't answer. Uh, no, none of you three. Anybody else? What's the other tree? No, you, you can't either. Somebody online. Good. See? Bam. So listen to this. This is, this is what Christianity believes. So Adam, he's called the son of God because he's the first human being. But of course, Christ is the son of God in a much deeper way. He's the only true son of God. Adam's the founder of the human race, he and Eve. By the way, get ready for Mary. We're going to talk about why Mary why Catholics love Mary, why they honor and revere her, and it all has to do with Eve. And if you don't understand Eve, you won't understand Mary. Um, but Adam is the true son of God. He's the founder of the human race along with Eve. Mary, through her cooperation with her son, will become the mother of the new human race. Right? Because God wants to set things right. In, in Eden, there's temptation, and, and Satan tempts Adam and Eve that if you eat of the tree of knowledge, you will be like God. And what St. Augustine says to us is that that's the temptation of your life. The temptation of your life is that you don't have to bend your knee to God. You are God. You can not only kind of live your life, you can determine what's good and what's evil. The, the catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that Satan's temptation to Eve was not about knowing right and wrong, because otherwise it couldn't be a sin, right? It's not, if, if, if you do something you didn't know was wrong, it's not a sin, by definition. The catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that the temptation to Eve and Adam was not to know the difference, it was to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong. If you don't think that's our modern world, you're crazy. Right? The whole message of the modern world is 
Don't tell me what to do. I will do whatever the hell I want to do. So there's, there's a temptation. And in the garden, so there's the tree of knowledge. What's the tree that is Jesus' temptation? It's the cross. He's in a garden, and there's a temptation not to go to the tree of the cross. The New Testament refers to the cross as the tree of life. Jesus is in Gethsemane, and Adam is going to be disobedient. Jesus will be obedient. And here's a real question. Like, as we go through RCIA, when I, I don't know where every one of your hearts is. Of course I don't. But here's what I want to challenge you to. The battle in your heart is not whether or not I can answer every question. The real battle in your heart is, can you trust God? Can you trust that his commands for your life are because he loves you? Or is he a tyrant who's just trying to exercise control? That's the temptation of Adam and Eve. And it is the temptation today. I don't need God. I know everything. I'm good. The hardest, I always say as a priest, the hardest people for me to work with as a priest are not people who disagree with me. When people disagree, when they're like, FB, I don't get this, I think that's wrong, I think you're wrong on 13 points. I'm like, great, let's talk. The hard people are people who just don't give a shit. You know why? Because they're God. They have everything figured out. They don't need God. They know everything. They make their life as they see fit. If you live your life that way, brothers and sisters, I just want to challenge you, you will never find God ever. To be a Christian, you have to admit you are not God. You do not know everything. You have problems in your life. And the good news is, there's a Redeemer. Christianity is not for perfect people. It's for sinners like me. That's who it's for. Okay. So there's, there's that. Okay. So, did we do this already? Have we already talked about Adam? Would you tell me if we did? Yeah, we did a little. Thank you. Okay, so when does... Let's just review this really quick. When is Adam, um, what day is Adam created on? Seventh day. Sixth day. Sixth day. Seventh day God rests, right? Yeah. Which day of the week is the sixth day? It's Friday, right? So Adam's created on a Friday because the first day of the week is Sunday. Saturday is the day of rest, the seventh day. Okay, so Jesus is the new Adam. That's who he is. He comes to make things right, to start a new human race. Switchfoot, which I'm like dating myself, but I like Switchfoot. Like 2000s, not 90s, Christian band. Love Switchfoot. They had an album called New Way to Be Human. This is what they're talking about. Let us 
know about God through Jesus? We don't know. Why so, at that time? Why you? that time? It's a good question. We don't know 100% the answer, but I will say this, is that um, so the New Testament, there's a seven generations of seven, seven times, uh, six times seven in Matthew 1. But more so than that, what I think it is is the Jews went to exile and they had suffered. And there's something, right, sometimes in life there are things you can only understand when you've suffered a little bit. Um, I look back in my own life and there's times that I'm like, man, I was an arrogant jerk. Some of you think I still am. It's probably true. But anyway, but there, there's a point when like suffering sometimes brings us to a place where we're ready to listen. The New Testament, the symbol that humanity is ready for Jesus, and we'll get, someday we'll get to this, the symbol of that is Mary. Mary has become so humble and Israel has been in exile. They've suffered. And Mary is the full symbol of that, that there is a soul that is open to God. Completely, totally, without reservation. Um, there's something there. So was she an accident or a plan? She was planned. Okay. She's planned, but she's fully free. That's important. God doesn't just use people. She is totally free. She's planned, but she has her freedom. Um, but let's keep going with this really quick. So, yes, Steph. Internet question. Internet question. Why is it referred to as true Son of God? Is there a false son? Is true refer to the divine? So true, what we mean by that is Adam is the Son of God in an analogous sense. Um, when people say, like, oh, you're like a son to me. It's kind of like that. Adam is called the son of God, because of, not because he was bad, but because of analogy. But before the coming of Christ, we didn't know that God had a son in the real sense. And so Jesus, that's what we mean by this, the true son of God. Okay, so Friday, Jesus created our Friday. And we've done this, and I want to hit some more new territory. Jesus dies, right? How, does, how is Eve created when Adam in the garden. How does Eve come to be? Rib. Thank you. I like that. Right there. Yep. So Adam sleeps and from his side God pulls out a rib, creates Eve and what the new humanity, right, what we believe as Christians is that the true Adam, the new son of God, on the same day of the week, on a Friday, Christ enters into the sleep of death from his side come forth blood and water, which creates the church, which is his bride. New creation. So why did Jesus come into the world? He didn't come just to kind of, I don't know, perform miracles and like do cool stuff. He came to make all things as they should be. To create a new humanity where we don't have to distrust God but we can actually live in faith. We can surrender. We can be restored to that relationship with God. Okay, quick pause, and then I want to move on if there's not questions. Yeah.
not to be able to see because their eyes would be open to all of yep. the evils or whatever. But I always struggle with why would God not want us to be able to like understand and have our intellect to be able to like yep. see good from evil and stuff like that. I felt like it was kind of a he would want to keep us like happy to see good. Yeah. That was you know. Yep. Ignorance but, is bliss, kind of thing. Right. Why would? Good question. So why would God not want us to know good and evil? Did he just want us to say stupid and ignorant? The answer, it's a great question. The answer is no. So again, what we believe as Christians, so Genesis 1 through 11 uses a lot of um, allegorical language. And if you read the Catechism, it'll say that. So um, the word in Hebrew for when it says Adam and Eve did not know good and evil the Hebrew word is yada. Now, that word, right, to know, is that's a good translation. But here's the, here, the way that's used in the Hebrew mind, though, is so when David commits adultery with Bathsheba, she miscarries. And David comforts Bathsheba, and he knows his wife and she becomes pregnant. So that word in Hebrew can mean like intellectual knowledge. Or experiential. And, and that's used all throughout the Old Testament. And so the way we understand this, you can't sin, right? If like... Um, when I was a kid, quick story, when I was, um, my mom, I don't know how old I was, probably, probably too old, like 17, just kidding. We were at the grocery store one time, and I thought, you know they have those like beef jerky sticks at the checkout line? I thought those were complimentary. <laughs> and so we're, I'm like, my mom's like holding me in the checkout line, and I just grab one. And we're in the parking lot, and she's like, Brian. Where did you get that? I was like, check out why. <laughs> like, you know, she is actually. I think so, at least. You know, I was like 15, and like, no, I wasn't 15. But I don't know. I was old enough to talk, obviously, but I didn't know it was wrong. I, I thought it was literally a complimentary gift when you went to the grocery store. You get a beef jerky stick, right? Because you behave, because your mom told you to you know, behave in the grocery store. So my mom, being a good mom, she made me go back to the cashier and apologize and return it. But it's not, that's not a sin. It's a mistake. There's a difference between a sin and a mistake. So the church is saying here, if you don't know something's wrong, truly, truly, there are some things you should know better, right? When the cop pulls you over and you say, well, I didn't, officer, I know I was going 85, I didn't know the speed limit was 40. The, the cop can legitimately say to you, you should have known. There are some places where we should have known, but if there really is a place where you didn't know and you didn't have to know, that's not a sin. So God did not want to keep us in ignorance. Of course not. He didn't want us to experience sin. So when he says, in the day, so you will know the difference between good and evil, He's not talking about this. He's talking about, right? Remember the first time you probably committed a big sin in your life and you felt like garbage? You're like, no. 
I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I do. I know what that feels like. Right? And again, why should you believe in God? There's, oh, I, I feel like I'm the worst RCIA teacher sometimes. Why should you believe in God? If you don't believe in God, you cannot explain that. The most important things about human experience are not what you own. It's not what technology you have. It's not how far you succeed in your career. The deeper things of what it means to be a human being are about your soul. And if you don't believe in God, it becomes essentially impossible to believe in the soul, to believe in conscience, to believe in right and wrong, to believe in these deeper things. So, so the Christian answer is that the story of the garden is about this. Does that kind of answer it? Okay. Other questions? So what you're saying is God did not want us to experience the separation from him, even for a moment. Right. Sin alienates from you from God and from other people. Right? And so, and again, it can't be a sin. If God says, I don't want you to know good and evil, and we take that to mean God doesn't want us to know the difference between good and evil, well, how could God want us to be good? If there's never a possibility of not being good, that it becomes nonsensical. And again, this is not just me. This is what the early Christian writers say about this. So. Okay, other questions? Okay. So it's too late to get into faith too much. We will talk about that next week. Let me, get, let me preface it by this. How do you come to faith? So maybe we are going to talk about faith. Um, how do you come to a place of, like, I believe? Here's what it's not. What faith is not is a series of checkboxes. And here's the danger of this. Here's the danger for all of us. The danger is, hey, God, if you're, if you're really there, if, if, if Jesus, if you're God, prove it to me. What happens when you do that is you make yourself God. And you make him subservient to you. It's actually the exact opposite of faith. So I think the caricature is like, okay, if, if FB, I'll go to RCIA. If FB has enough good answers, okay, God exists. Okay, priests aren't totally lame. Maybe, maybe they are. You go down the list, I can't do that for you. What I can do for you is I can show you, I think, that it makes more sense than not to believe these things. We will go through objections people have, but here's what faith is, and I meant to print this out tonight, but I ran out of time. So one of the quotes I will give you next week Faith is almost synonymous to a surrender. Mm 
is much more like falling in love than it is like an intellectual exercise. And it, of course, has intellectual pieces to it. Pope Benedict says that if it didn't, it would just be sentimentality. If someone says nice things to you and it feels good but it's not true, that's just sentimentality. It's a Hallmark card, right, where people say, you know, you've got great hair. I mean, I don't know, whatever, whatever Hallmark cards are. But it's not real. It has to be real. And so the intellect does matter, but if you think that God can just be approached by you figuring it out, you have ceased to be a creature. Yes, Steph? What was the word that you just had on the board of intellect and experiential? Yeah. Experiential. Experiential. So on the, the board, yada. Yada is a Hebrew word that means to know, but in the scriptures it can mean, intellectually it can mean that, that I know something, or it can mean I know what it's like to ski down um, Arapahoe Basin. Is it Y-A-D-A? Y-A-D-A is yada. Okay, so faith is, it's a surrender. And again, like, and I, uh, we started class with this. The first thing for Christianity is the way. And so God doesn't expect you to be like, okay, I'll be a priest. That's not it. When Jesus calls the apostles, he doesn't say, okay, guys, here's 14 intellectual propositions. Think about them hard. Check the boxes. See if you want to be a Christian. What he says is he says, you, I'm kind of pointing at you because you're behind the camera. <laughs> Remind me, Uni? Jen. 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 He points at Jen and he says, Jen, come with me. And the apostles, one of the main stories of the New Testament, one of the main themes of the New Testament, is the apostles don't get it yet. Jesus didn't point to Peter on a boat and say, hey, Peter, come follow me. And Peter's like, oh my gosh, you're God. You are the second person of the Trinity. I bet there's seven sacraments. Right? He didn't say that. Peter didn't know that. He knew that there was something compelling, and he surrendered something of himself, and he said, okay, right? There's something here that, that speaks to me. That's why faith is not just like you can't just have it or not have it. If you become a Christian, if you already are, Christianity is not so easy. Christianity means in me as a priest for 10 years, I have to wake up tomorrow and say, Okay, Lord, I'll surrender. I'll take another step. Yep. In the beginning, the very first time when we met in the church, you yep. gave us a list uh -huh. of three things that you had to do to yep. become Catholics. You remember him? Uh, that he pleases God. You believe in God. He pleases God, and then the church has the authority. Yeah, the third. So God exists, Jesus is God, and the Jesus gave authority to the Catholic Church. 
But so you're expecting us, you gave us, which is kind of contradictory to what you're saying. How so? How so? So tell me, how is that contradictory? Well, because you're saying that faith isn't just a checklist. Yep. But But I gave you a checklist. (laughs) (laughs) Don't point out my hypocrisy. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, that's fair. There, there is a certain checklist, but at least in that checklist, that second box of is Jesus God, that the faith and the surrender is an ongoing, constant thing. So. So I guess what I'm trying to say with that is to simplify things, but if you're definitely not there, you can't really become Catholic, right? If, if Peter never got out of his boat and said, okay, all right, Lord, I'll follow you, the story ends there, right? Like, it, has, it doesn't stop once you're baptized or confirmed. It has to keep going, but it never goes anywhere if you don't take that step. Well, we're, and here's, here's where we're going to go next week. Here's what G.K. Chesterton says. So how do you, one of the, and like, you really want to think deeply this week? Ask yourself this question. How do I know, how do I know that something is true? Which, by the way, if you've got an easy answer for that, you're probably way off. Um, Well, in some ways you're probably right, too. But that question of how do I know something is one of the hardest questions in all of philosophy and all of thought. How do I know, right? Right now, like, there's this huge debate in our country about what news is fake and what's real. And how do you know? How do you know? And ultimately, what we're going to talk about is most of our knowledge, we have to trust someone. some level for most of our knowledge um, and even if we're not trusting someone else we have to trust our own experience which by the way I know my experience can be wrong I know that what I have experienced in life that I might be off like I'm not as cool as I think I am um, I thought this person really loved me I thought whatever X Y and Z the longer you live, you learn that knowledge has a lot to do with faith. It has a lot to do with faith. Um, but here's what here's your tease for next week. Um, when we talk about faith, um, Chesterton says this. And this is, this is the best way to kind of say it simply. This goes light years deep. Um, Chesterton says, I think I've quoted this before, but one more time. If you and I were on a safari and you're nervous, you're in the jungle, and you keep wondering when you're going to hear a lion. How do you know if that sound is a lion or not? And what Chesterton says is that if you're on that safari, you would be tempted whenever you heard a hyena, you would think it's a lion. But when you actually hear a lion, there is no mistaking it. This is similar to what the Christian wants to say about Christ. 
is that what we look for, usually when people, let's just use, so Jesus comes into history. And what we look for is we say, I want to use something I know. I want some kind of measure. So is Jesus God? And what we look for is we look for something that is more certain. And this is what we do with almost all of our knowledge. We look for something that is more certain that we apply to something that is less certain. There are certain things, though, that you can't get past. Like, and if you, if you push philosophy, if you push the limits of human knowledge, there are certain things that you just know and if someone asks you for a proof for that, there is no measure. So for instance, in philosophy, and I know this is dense, so I'm sorry, it's a little dense tonight, but one, one example of this would be what philosophers call the principle of non-contradiction. And so what, the, what that principle says is it says something cannot both be true and not be true in the same way, in the same manner, at the same time. So what that means is you can't say this shirt is black and it's not black. That those both, like that's, that's the principle of non-contradiction. Now, you could say, well, this, you could say it in a different way or at a different time. You could say, this shirt is not black prior to when it was dyed. That's not a contradiction. But to say right now, here and now, in the same way, in the same manner, same time, to say the shirt is black and it's not black? If someone says, well, why is that true? How do you know that the principle of non-contradiction is true? That's when you stop talking. Seriously. And so, so what the church wants to say is that what you and I do, and I, I know this is dense, just hang one more second. When, when we look at God, what we want to say is, how do I know Jesus? How do I know that's really you? How do I know you're really God? And here's what the church says. There is no measure for Christ, but he measures all things. And next week, remind me, Steph, remind me, next week I'll start, Balthazar has a book, where he says, love alone is credible. And what he says, so think of that hyena and the lion. And what he says, he says, and Balthazar again, one of the smartest human beings who has ever lived. This guy makes me look like the most unintelligent person ever. He is so freaking smart. It's ridiculous. Balthazar says the deepest thing in human beings is not knowledge, it's love. And he says that all of history, human beings have tried to understand God through one of two arguments, which we'll talk about maybe next week. I don't know. We'll see. But, and he says both of them are true. They both work. They actually both logically prove God's existence, 100%. But he says the real proof is neither of those. It's that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, we heard the lion roar. He doesn't say it that way because he didn't read Chesterton. But that's what he says. He says, 
the real measure of all things is that I did not know what love was, but I saw it on the cross. And that word, the greatest word of God that was ever spoken, the greatest thing God ever said was not a vocal word. It was the loving, obedient death of Christ. And so, sorry, I get so emotional. Mom, but Balthazar says, I did not know what love was. I thought I did. I always thought I knew what love was until I saw our crucifix. And he says, then, and he talks about it as an adult. In an adult way, when I looked on a crucifix as an adult, he says, it was then that I realized that I did not know what love really and that instead of using other things to measure Christ, I heard the lion roar. And I knew that this was the reality that measures all other realities. Deep stuff. Super emotional. Next week we'll talk about it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, give us faith. Bless us here tonight. Bless our country, our world. Jesus, open our hearts to you, the deepest thing in life. Open us to the truth of your death on the cross, of what authentic love really is. Uh, Lord, give us your grace. Amen. Okay, thanks everybody. Happy Advent. See you next time.